Zeko. Silva. Beautifully timed run, Balotelli to make it two. I'm gonna, oh, no, are you kidding? Serious? Mario Balotelli. And he's getting boots for this. And welcome to episode number 32 of the Sportscasters. It is July 26th, 2011 here in beautiful, sunny Buffalo, New York. My name is Steve Bennett and my co-host is Don Ross. How are you doing today, Don? Awesome. How are you? It is episode number 32 of the Sportscasters here in a two-episode week. In episode 32, which you are listening to right now, we are going to have an interview with Ben Nicholson-Smith from MajorLeagueBaseballTradeRumors.com to talk about the Major League Baseball trade deadline, which is this Sunday, July 31st. And also we have an interview with Matt Crossman from Sporting News. Surprisingly, he's the first Sporting News writer to be on. I've been a subscriber to Sporting News since I was very young. And it's taken us this long to get someone on, but Matt will join us today to talk about a cover story he did on NFL running back Arian Foster. It's a really interesting story. And also we talk a little bit with him about NASCAR, about baseball, kind of all different things. Really interesting interview. And you should enjoy it. A couple things I want to mention off the top. Uh, first, I want to thank Nate Dunlevy. He was on the show a few weeks ago. It was part of our 32 for 32 series. And he is from 18to88.com, an Indianapolis Colts blog. And he sent me an autographed book that he wrote about the Colts. I wanted to thank him for that. It came in the mail the other day. And it's available on Amazon.com. If, if you search his name, Nate Dunlevy, you can find his book about the Indianapolis Colts. I don't know if it'll be signed like my copy, <laughs> but I encourage you to check it out. Uh, also, just wanted to mention off the top, you can always come and check out our website, www.sports-casters.com. You can find us on Facebook, facebook.com slash sportscasters. You can find us on Twitter, sports underscore casters, and blogs. I've been blogging a ton lately. And this weekend, I wrote another WWF, The Greatest Night in WWF History blog, and also wrote an Eight Reasons Why the 80s Kick-Ass blog. And I'm hoping to involve Jimmy Trena in that. Jimmy was, Jimmy was on a couple weeks ago as well. He's involved at SI.com with the Hot Clicks thing. He's another lover of the 80s, and I'm hoping he'll do one, um, make a list of his top reasons, and we can kind of debate the two lists on the show sometime in August. That'll be fun. So I'm going to try to set that up. I like how when you talk about the WWF, you have to stop and correct yourself <laughs> for the old way to say it. Right, because I don't want to call it WWE. Yeah, you refuse Screw that. To, yeah. yeah, it's a WWF, damn it. Uh, and I'm sure this week I will do another greatest night in WWF history. I've been doing SummerSlams, but I think I'm going to take a break from that and do WrestleMania three this week because someone asked for it. And also... I will be live blogging on Sunday for the Major League Baseball trade deadline, so you can count on that as well. But we have a big show lined up, like I said, by Nicholson Smith and Matt Crossman, so let's get it started with three things. Let's play a game. All right. Count of three. One. Alrighty. I'll take it off. Two. The oil patterns on a PBA lane are very, very difficult. I might be able to beat Jamarcus Russell at quarterback. <laughs> this is the funnest night ever! <laughs> Did we just become best friends? Yep! Now let's move on to other business. 
All right, my first thing this week, Michael Cuttier, who is uh, far from a superstar baseball player, is a Minnesota twin, and he had the interesting distinction uh, recently of being the first position player for the Twins to hit pitch since 1990. So in 21 years, wow. he's the first position player. He's an outfielder. He pitched one inning, gave up two hits and a walk, but uh, managed to pop up the last two batters and pitched a scoreless inning of baseball in a game in which they were blown out. I don't remember exactly what night it was played, but they were blown out. They didn't want to waste any more of their bullpen, so, and he, he had been bugging, I guess, the coach to, to try it out, and so they finally let him. I guess the only position he hasn't played professionally now is catcher. Screw catcher, man. Yeah, That's yeah, tough work. I don't think he'll be doing that. <laughs> and maybe shortstop. I think they said he came up and played some shortstop in college, but he hasn't catcher and shortstop. So maybe he'll play short someday, but, yeah, I don't see the catcher thing happening. Yeah, that's an interesting story. Remember when Jose Canseco tried to pitch? Then he ended up, he ended up blowing his elbow out. <laughs> having to have time. I vaguely remember him pitching. I didn't know he blew his elbow out. Oh, yeah, he messed himself up. And I don't even think a shot in the butt could cure that one for good old Jose. <laughs> My first thing, the Seattle Mariners, they're in a slump. Do you know how many games in a row they've lost on? Uh, I know it's well into the double digits. They have lost 16 20, straight 16, games in yeah. a row, and as we record, they are playing the Yankees at Yankee Stadium against CC Sabathia. Ooh. So it is a 16-game losing streak that could very easily go from 16 to 17. Man, Seattle, terrible. This is a team that... They'll occasionally spend money. They don't spend Red Sox and Yankees money, but they'll spend money. This is the longest losing streak in the major leagues since the Kansas City Royals dropped 19 in a row in 2005. They're creeping up on the American League record, which is 21 losses by the Baltimore Orioles at the start of the 1988 season. And they just plain out stink. They can't (laughs) win. They can't pitch. They can't hit. Uh, they have a pitcher who's three and eleven on the year with a three point three zero ERA. Wow, wow! So I mean, the poor kid is going out there. It's Doug Fister going out there, and he's pitching it, pitching his heart out, but he can't get a win because the team stinks. So I feel bad for Mariners fans, people in Seattle, sports fans in Seattle in general, who have been tortured the last few years with the loss of their basketball team. And I'm sure right about now, some of them wouldn't mind sending the baseball team to Oklahoma as well, since they can't even, in the words of Jim Mora, they can't even win a game! (laughs) Speaking of things that stink, Tiger Woods, for the first time since 1997, since January of 97, is outside of the top 20 looking in, and I (laughs) I really don't have much to add to this other than we and the sportscasters here have been kind of documenting his decline. We've you called right away that you just thought he was done, and it sure looks to be the case. And golf isn't better not having Tiger Woods around, but that said, it's better not having this Tiger Woods around. And they've got good stories like Darren Clark. So he maybe he should just bow out as gracefully as he possibly can at this point. You know, I'm still waiting to find out, is this guy ever going to be what he once was? Because it's just such a drastic decline. Right, he's not old. To it's not go like from... Got- Superstar doesn't even describe what Tiger Woods right, was. Right. And to go from that to to disgraced, to having his career ruined, to having injury after injury, I mean, everything that can go wrong for this guy since Thanksgiving a couple of years ago has gone wrong. You know, it's like we can probably all 
point to spots in our lives where things change forever. Like I know personally, I had a really serious illness in 2003. And when it happened, my whole life changed forever. You can, we can all look back at points like that. Maybe, Don, the day you got married, your life changed forever. We, we can all think of things. For Tiger Woods, his life changed forever the day that his crazy wife was chasing him with a golf club <laughs> and he backed his car into the back of a tree in his own parking lot. I mean, he's, not, he's just never been the same. Absolutely not. All right, my second thing. John, or John. Hey, John. We got a new host. His name is John. Uh, Don, do you remember episode 21 when we had the author James Andrew Miller on to talk about his ESPN book? Yes. Well, that book is going to be a movie. 20th Century Fox has acquired the screen rights to ESPN. Those guys have all the fun, which, of course, was written by our guest James Andrew Miller and his partner Tom Shales. They also penned an SNL Tell All Live book that has been sitting on my Kindle for the last few months. That, that's right off the bat. Uh, that's interesting in itself that it's not Disney or anybody. Right, yeah. I mean, it's an alternate company. Yep, and uh, the film will be produced by Michael DeLuca and Dana Brunetti. And they are significant because they collaborated on 2010's Oscar-winning The Social Network, which was also had Academy Award winner... Aaron Sorkin and David Fitcher. There's no word on whether or not they're going to be involved, but according to sources, they want to be involved. Do they think it's going to be? I mean, if those guys want to be involved, it seems like that would be a wide release. It's not the type of thing that they're just going to let come and go. Does it have the... I mean, Facebook is universal. Everybody... I mean, parents, grandparents are on Facebook. ESPN is about as big as it gets in the sports world, but I'm not sure that my wife would have any interest in seeing a movie well about it. your wife probably wouldn't have any interest in seeing the longest yard but that doesn't mean it wasn't a movie right right no but i guess my question is like do you think it'll be successful like the social network was a huge runaway hit at one i mean it did great sure and sports movies are successful all the time yeah right? yeah that's true i mean it's just another sports movie that's true and our buddies over at sportsgrid.com have cast the movie <laughs> and it's pretty interesting uh, some of the people, admittedly, I haven't heard of, but... I think Craig Kilborn should play himself. Yeah. Um, not doing anything else. Yeah, Craig's available. He was a funny they guy. They have Chris Bauer as Chris Berman. I don't know who Chris is. He's a bald-looking guy. Uh, they also have Blake Lively as Aaron Andrews, really hot-looking blonde. Uh, Cedric Yarborough as Stuart Scott. Uh, this... This film needs some star power here, for yeah. sure. Do you think Matt Barnaby makes the movie? Cameron Diaz as Michelle Beadle. He didn't make the book. Not at all, huh? No, I didn't. I guess I didn't his, uh, the book. his little thing was a little bit too late. Yep. My last thing. Apparently, in the Texas ballpark in Arlington, the wave is frowned on. This, uh, I, I have a screenshot here of a picture it looks like someone took with a cell phone camera. It says, ballpark warning in big yellow bold print. No wave. Surgeons have determined that doing the wave will, yes, will cause tears, tears, sorry, to the suprapanatus muscle, which sounds made up, and the infraspinitis muscle. From I think the th- they're kidding, right? I, I think they have to be. The intraspinitis muscle from the throwing of individuals' arms rapidly into the air. Uh. In addition, any children doing the wave will be sold to the circus. Do not do the wave (laughs) in the ballpark. Doing the wave is safe at pro football games and Miley Cyrus concerts. So I think they're kind of, it's a tongue-in-cheek way to poke fun at maybe how 
it but baseball's better than the wave i'm not sure that is one of the silliest things I've ever heard. Right, like it, it seems like a very inside joke. Like, do you think people were just reading it in the stadium and, and it seems cracking like, up? Or? It seems like no, nobody no, was that's laughing. What I'm saying. It seems like everyone was just there, going, "What the hell is this? <laughs> Some, this is what you call a joke, right?" And what's with the the Miley Cyrus? Uh, yeah, they got a blast on Miley Cyrus and football. She's great in concert. This I'm, I'm actually watching right now on YouTube a video of her singing her hit "Party in the USA," and she's barely clothed. Ah, <laughs> oh, boy, good job, Arlington. Hilarious. <laughs> All right, my third thing. Terrell Pryor is an interesting guy, and his agent is making sure that he is going to be eligible for the, for the supplemental, supplemental draft. draft. Huh. So he asked. Ohio State to make it clear to send the letter and make it clear that he wouldn't be playing football at Ohio State this year under any circumstance. So Ohio State did one better. They said not only would he not be playing next year, he is banned from Ohio State University (laughs) Athletics for the next five years. Wow. They don't want him anywhere near the program for the next five years. And I'm going to give a little inside baseball here. The last three weeks... Right around this time of the night, there's been a siren in near oh, our studio in ba- Buffalo. You said inside baseball. Okay, I, so I just thought you were going to say, like, yeah. what the hell is with this siren? I don't know. Every single week at the end of recording, or la- one of our last segments. So yeah. Unbelievable. <laughs> it's, 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 it's clockwork. The last three weeks with the siren. Yep. But anyway, Ohio State does not want Terrell Pryor near them. I got a chuckle out of that. You know, his agent is... is it's like, don't worry, buddy. You don't have to beg us. Yes. We'll make it really clear. So the supplemental draft now, the teams have to like apply for that, right? Like They have to say they want to go. The supplemental draft only occurs if there's players who, who need the supplemental draft. Okay. If there's no players, they don't have it. So he'll be the only player in the supplemental he draft? He could be, yeah. <laughs> and then I'm not exactly sure how they determine. It might be like a waivers process. Right. You know, do you want to pick? No, or whatever. I'm not exactly sure how it works. But one thing I wanted to say about three things as we close it out here, you may have noticed that football was mostly missing. And the reason for that is because you're listening to episode 32 of the Sportscasters, but also this week we have episode number 33 of the Sportscasters, which is the Sportscasters end of the NFL lockout super spectacular. That's right. And we have interviews with Gabe Feldman on all of the legal. We have our segment five on fantasy to talk a little fantasy football. We have Kerry J. Byrne from coldheartfootballfacts.com to talk about statistics and some of the maybe money ball type football stuff. And we also have John P. Lopez to talk about NFL free agency as we're getting ready to spend the craziest weekend ever with NFL free agents. So if you're wondering why we didn't mention the lockout ending, the reason is you'll be able to find plenty of that on episode number 33, which you can find on our website, which I mentioned off the top, www.sports-casters.com. So you got double Sportscasters this week, and we will be right back with an interview about the Major League Baseball trade deadline with Ben Nicholson-Smith. Our next guest lives in Toronto, Ontario, Canada. 
and is a graduate of the University of Western Ontario. He also has a master's degree in journalism from Carleton University. In his career, he has covered baseball, basketball, and the National Hockey League. Today, he is a staff writer at the wildly popular Major League Baseball TradeRumors.com. Since starting in 2008, he has contributed over 45,000 posts to the website and covered the GM meetings and many live Major League Baseball games. A warm sportscaster's welcome to the talented Ben Nicholson-Smith. How are you doing today, Ben? Doing well. How's it going? Doing very well. Very excited to talk to you today. I'm excited about the trade deadline this year. It's July 31st, and obviously trades can be made after that, but you have to clear waivers, and it's a whole different thing. But it's been such an interesting season, and it seems like there's a lot of teams that there's a little bit of gray area as to whether or not they're going to be buyers or they're going to be sellers. And I think it's going to make for an exciting July 31st. I guess to start off, I want to know from you, as compared to previous trading deadlines, do you think we're going to have a more active or less active day on Sunday? It'll be active. I mean, it always is. I think that, you know, there's always teams out there looking to make moves and and looking to react to moves that the competition makes. But I think that probably relative to other years, it'll be a little quieter in terms of superstar talent. You know, last year we had Dan Aaron already dealt by this time and Cliff Lee already traded by this time and, you know, Roy Oswalt as well. So that was a pretty big three-headed monster, as it were, for, for starting pitching. And I really don't see that kind of starting pitching out there this year unless you think Baldo Jimenez is really going to be traded, but I probably think that's unlikely. It seems like the biggest name out there, if you just kind of troll the rumors, is Carlos Beltran. It seems like he's definitely going to be traded, and it seems like he's going to stay in the National League. He's one of those guys who has a no-movement clause in his contract, so he can kind of dictate where he goes. Is he kind of the main piece that is going to decide, you know, are the teams, is it the Giants, Phillies, and Braves, and whoever gets him, are they hoping to kind of, that that's the move that's going to push them over the top in the National League? Definitely. You know, I think Belfon really is the big chip out there. I think that, you know, you can look to other guys like Hunter Pence or potentially a BJ Upton or even Colby Rasmus, but those guys don't have to be traded. I mean, it's it's pretty easy for their teams to hold on to them. They're all under control for at least one more year, whereas Belfon's a free agent after the season, and he's not able to receive an offer of arbitration uh, under the terms of his contract. So, essentially, there's no chance that the Mets are going to get draft picks for him. If they want to get anything at all for him, they have to trade him now. So that's why they're listening to so many offers. And are the teams that I mentioned, do they make the most sense as potential destination, or there would there be some other teams he'd be willing to move that no-trade clause for? Yeah, I think that you know those clubs you mentioned are, are definitely in the mix. I think the Giants, Phillies, Braves, Rangers, Red Sox, potentially the Brewers. Uh, I hope I'm not leaving anybody out there, but that's that's kind of the, those are the main suitors for Beltran at this point, and every one of those clubs can absolutely use a bat of his caliber to slot into the middle of the lineup. I think the Braves, almost more than anyone, really need a bat. If not Beltran, where else do you think the Braves will go, and what do you think that the Braves are looking to do to improve their club to kind of try to track down the Phillies, or even just keep pace with the Phillies, really? Yeah, and that's a that's no easy task given how well the Phillies are playing and, and the kind of team that they've assembled. But I, I think that, you know, the Braves could definitely use some relief help. I think even if it's not a glamorous move, even if it's something like what they did last year, going out to get a middle reliever last year was Kyle Farnsworth. This year it could be Jason Fraser or somebody like that, a, a setup man who's essentially established and not necessarily going to be up there in terms of dominance with the Venters and Kimbrels and even the O'Flaherty's of the world, but somebody to go in and, and provide some 
provide some quality innings at the back of that bullpen. And I think that they will be looking for a bat, whether it's Hunter Pence, who apparently is somebody they haven't ruled out, or maybe a lesser bat like uh, Josh Willingham, for example, somebody who's set to, free, set to hit free agency after the season. I think that they'll be considering offense as well. So the Phillies seem pretty stacked, but I wouldn't be surprised if they did make another move or two just to kind of boost the team. Plus, you don't want to be there losing a five-game series in October and saying, man, we should have added this one guy. What do you expect from the Phillies? Yeah, I think they're going to be pretty active on Beltron. I mean, there were reports out there yesterday saying that they've cooled on him, but all of this changes so quickly this time of year that you know, I'm not, I'm not convinced that they're out of the mix for him yet. And the Phillies tend to operate under the radar when it comes to their big moves anyway. So I think they're in on Beltron. I won't be surprised if they acquire Hunter Pence. I won't be surprised if they acquire some other right-handed bat because they've been looking for right-handed hitting for easily a month right now. And they're also looking for bullpen help. So it's kind of funny that they and the Braves have such similar needs at this time of year because, you know, both, both clubs have really stacked rotations, have you know, offenses that are pretty good but could certainly be better, especially if some guys in their lineup start hitting a little better. And, you know, I, that's why I think that they're both going to be looking for right-handed hitting outfielders and relief help. Let's stick in the National League and kind of move to the National League Central, where there's four teams within four games of first place, Cincinnati, Milwaukee, St. Louis, and Pittsburgh. And Pittsburgh is certainly a team that you usually expect to be selling guys on July 31st. I can't imagine that there's any way they could sell that to their fans this year. It seems like they'll be buyers. What do you expect from the Pirates this year? I think the Pirates will probably make a minor move or two. I think they're going to be conservative in terms of holding on to prospects. I do not think that they're going to be the team that goes out and gives the Mets that top prospect they're looking for for Beltron. Even though the Pirates have been inquiring on some of the top outfielders out there, including Beltron, including Hunter Pence and B.J. Austin and everybody else. So I think that the Pirates are more likely to make a modest move uh, somebody for a corner outfield slot, perhaps a first baseman, uh, perhaps a, a little bit of relief help to go along with Jason Grilly, who they signed last week. But, you know, I think that their rotation has been really good, probably better than um, anybody expected, and probably better than it will be for the second two and a half months of the season. But I think that their their real concern probably lies in the bullpen and then on offense. But part of that is going to come from guys coming off the disabled list as well. Do you expect St. Louis to make a big move? They're usually a team that's not afraid to add salary. They're right there, tied with the Pirates. Four first place, just percentage point behind, 529 to 530. What do you expect from St. Louis? Yeah, you know, I, I think that they're going to listen on Colby Rasmus, and, and that's a pretty big development for a team that brought him up as its young star and a guy who was a really quality player last year and is still having a decent year this year, even though the numbers aren't quite where a lot of people expected them to be. So, I think that they'll listen on him, and there are lots of indications that they're willing to consider trading him. But, you know, the Cardinals' main tar- target right now is starting pitching and relief pitching. So they've had a shaky back end of the bullpen all season long with all sorts of issues. Ryan Franklin, you know, Miguel Batista, both of those guys have been released. They really haven't had that presence, especially since they had to move Kyle McClellan to the rotation. So I, I really think the Cardinals are going to be looking for for bullpen help and potentially starting help, and if they make the right trade, they can actually shift McClellan back to the bullpen. Everyone wants starting pitching, but I'm looking at a list of potential players to be traded, and it doesn't seem that great. Carl Pavano has mentioned, Ty Lilly, Ryan Dempster, maybe Edwin Jackson. You've already said that you don't really think that Ubaldo will be moved. Where are people going to go for starting pitching? Yeah, you mentioned Edwin Jackson, and I think that he's an interesting name. I mean, the White Sox, for all intents and purposes, don't need him. He's a free agent after the year, 
The White Sox are in a confusing place right now, and Kenny Williams, their general manager, has said that he's willing to consider turning over the roster. So, you know, Edwin Jackson's a guy who's having a good season, probably a better season than his superficial stats would give him credit for, and the White Sox have six starters, so they can get by with him. They're not like the Orioles, for example, who are going to have a gaping hole in their rotation if they trade Jeremy Guthrie because the Orioles' rotation has been something of a disaster this year, whereas the White Sox have had are really consistent performances from, from people outside of John Danks at the beginning of the year, but they do have six quality starters. So I think they could part with Edwin Jackson, and he's a guy to watch this month. The Dodgers are, just to stay in that division, are 13 games out of first place. They've had a crazy season with the divorce and being taken over by Major League Baseball, but not, and being in the courts. And they do have a lot of uh, high-priced talent. Are the Dodgers going to make any changes to relieve some of the salary burden, or are they, do you expect them to just kind of stay put? And would you say just about anyone on their team other than maybe Kershaw are off the market or on? Yeah, you know, I, think that, I think that a lot of the Dodgers will be available, but I think that you know, Kershaw and then you alluded to Kemp and Ethier. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that those guys are probably probably unavailable. But, you know, guys like, let's just say, for instance, Jamie Carroll, Hiroki Kuroda, um, Rod Barajas, Gianna Navarro, Ted Lilly. I mean, I think those guys would be available in the right trades, but I'm not really sure that anybody's going to give up too much of substance for any one of those guys other than Kuroda. Interesting. Even Ted Lilly with the premium on starting pitching? Yeah, you know, I think that Lily would be interesting. I, I know that there's a lot of interest right now in the Astros starter, Wandy Rodriguez, and, you know, he and Ted Lilly are pretty comparable in that they're left-handed starters who are probably number two or number three pitchers in a rotation, and, you know, they're, they're getting up there in their mid-30s or, or at least, you know, into their 30s at this point, so, and under similar contracts as well. So I, I think that there is some value, but there has been talk that, you know, in a trade for Rodriguez, the, the Astros might even have to take on salary. So, you know, I think that with Lily and Wandy Rodriguez, I mean, those guys, because they have, you know, I don't have the figures in front of me, but I think it's something like $20, $25, 30000000 million owed to them still through their current contracts. I mean, the, the, uh, the premium on a guy like that is limited because not every team can take on that kind of salary. One name that really jumps out at me, and really makes sense to be moved is Hideki Matsui. I watched him go 5-for-5 five five at Yankee Stadium the other day. He's a former World Series MVP, someone who's proven that he can play in the postseason. And he doesn't make a lot of sense for Oakland, who doesn't seem really close to contending. It seems like maybe he's the perfect guy for Oakland to turn around for younger, cheaper prospects. Do you expect Matsui to be moved, and where do you think Matsui would fit best? Yeah, you know, it's an interesting it's an interesting proposition. I think that it's something that the A's are going to consider, but I saw a report a couple of days ago that said that they hadn't received any calls on him at this point. So, you know, he had a, a pretty good week recently. I think he shared player of the week honors, and, you know, he does have eight homers to his name, but he's not necessarily the difference-making slugger he once was with the Yankees or before that in Japan. So, you know, I think that he could interest teams like potentially the Pirates, potentially the Phillies. I mean, I know both of those clubs were linked to another former Yankee slugger who bats from the left side of the plate and Jason Giambi. So, you know, Giambi recently dealt with a bit of an injury, and that could limit his availability or the interest that teams have in him. But I think that maybe they'll look to Matsui, you know, another aging slugger who can really hit right-handed pitching and provide a little power off of the bench. You did mention Matsui, eight home runs, 45 RBIs. 
he's slugging 371, OPS 686. So maybe not having, like you said, the, the season that he's been known to have, but definitely an interesting name. Another interesting name is Jim Tomey, and uh, we did mention before Kyle Pavano in Minnesota. Minnesota st- still seems too far out to really li- realistically contend, and there's so many teams ahead of them. They'd have to jump three teams. Do you think Minnesota's going to move Tomei at the, or Pavano at the deadline? You know, I think the Twins are going to consider moves for sure because, you know, they're eight games under 500. As you alluded to, they're, they're behind a number of teams in the standings right now. So it's going to be tricky for them to really become significant in the AL Central. But, you know, as for Tomei, he's four home runs away from 600. So if he's traded, it will definitely be after he reaches that milestone. And I think that, you know, maybe that'll happen in August if he clears waivers and, and nobody claims his $3 million salary, then he's a guy who could definitely be traded next month. And the same goes for a whole lot of other players out there, especially guys who aren't necessarily living up to their contracts, like Derek Lee, Vladimir Guerrero, players like that who, who haven't really uh, performed to expectations this year. So I, I think that the Twins will be making moves. I don't think Kadaya will move. I don't think that Art Span will be traded. But, you know, maybe it's a minor move, like a Jose Mihari is being traded potentially even a Carl Pavano, as you said. And I, I think that you know, some of those other guys, like Kadayo and Tommy, will be staying put. What do the Indians need to do to keep, keep pace with Detroit, who kind of seems like me, they've established themselves as the best team in the Central? What does Cleveland need to do to keep this magical season going here? I know they just suffered a bad break with Sizemore going on the disabled list. Are they maybe looking for an outfielder or a bat? Yeah, you know, I, I think that, you know, they could definitely use an outfield bat, like you said. I think, you know, you lose you lose Shinsu Chu, you lose Grady Sizemore, that's two of their best hitters, two good defensive outfielders. They could certainly use some help in that department right now. And they could also use starting pitching help and they've been linked to a whole lot of names, whether it's Aaron Harang or Hiroki Kuroda. They are in on a lot of starting pitching. But, you know, the Indians have said that they're not necessarily going to be prepared going to be giving up those top prospects that teams are asking for at this time of year. So I think something's going to have to give, and I don't think it will be the Indians. So if somebody's asking price drops on a guy like Aaron Harang or Hiroki Kuroda, then the Indians will pounce and will give up a secondary prospect or take on salary. But I don't think they're going to budge and start considering trades for the Drew Pomeranzes and Jason Kittnesses of the world. The Sportscasters are here with Ben Nicholson-Smith from MajorLeagueBaseballTradeRumors.com or MLBTradeRumors.com. We're talking about the Major League Baseball trade deadline here on Sunday. We haven't talked about the Yankees or the Red Sox yet. I've been kind of saving that, so let's get to them now. Separated by only two games in the East, it seems like Tampa Bay has fallen out a little bit, nine behind in the division, seven and a half behind in the wild card. Let's start with Tampa Bay before we get to Boston and New York. Does Tampa Bay think they're still in this race? Are they going to stay put, or are there some veterans that they might be interested in moving? You know, I, I think that I would say all of the above to, to that question. I mean, I think that they do think they're in the race to one extent or another. They obviously acknowledge that the Red Sox and Yankees are powerhouses and have certainly played better than them at this point in the year. But even though the Rays aren't ruling out a run of contention this year from everything that I can tell, they are going to be willing to consider trades for veterans, whether that's uh, Kyle Farnsworth, whether that's uh, an outfielder, for example, Johnny Damon. I mean, Casey Cochran could be traded as well. So I, I think that the Rays always consider trades that will help them for this year and beyond, even if that means trading guys who are having solid seasons, like a Damon, like a Casey Cochran. So, you know, I, I think that it, it's, it's really hard to predict, and the Rays never really fit into these predetermined categories that we have, like buyer and seller and 
you know, someone who's going for it and someone who's not going for it. I, I mean, I don't think they're going to make the playoffs. And I think that the people in the race front office probably acknowledge that their chances of making the playoffs are pretty slim. But, you know, they're going, they're going to, they're not going to give up in the season entirely, but I think they will consider trades. All right, let's start the big two. How about the Yankees? Where do they go? A-Rod has been on the disabled list. Seems like maybe they could use another bat. And their, their starting pitching seems very slim, too. You get into names like Freddie Garcia really quick over there. Where, where do you see the Yankees, and what do you see them doing here at the trade deadline? They definitely like to add some left-handed relief, and I can see them going out and doing that. I mean, I don't think anyone's going to give them a discount on a guy like a Sean Marshall, like a Matt Thornton, so uh, they'll have to overpay if they want that elite kind of left-handed relief. But, you know, you mentioned they're a team that could potentially use a bat, but, you know, at the same time, they're third in the league in runs, they lead the league in home runs, A-Rod should be back at some point. So I don't think that they're sensing this urgency to go out and make a move, and I think that, if anything, they're probably going to be looking for starting pitching help because, yeah. like you said, Freddie Garcia, Ivan Nova, Bartolo Colon, how long can these guys really carry you before you have to go out and get reinforcements? And even A.J. Bernard as your number two has been, he's very inconsistent, maybe not someone you can trust. So if the Yankees are going to go for a starting pitcher, are they a team that are going to be in on the top guys, the Pavano, of, but geez, we're calling Pavano the top guy. They don't, they're not going to go anywhere near him ever again, but maybe the Edwin Jackson or Guthrie or, geez, where do they go for starting pitching? It's, it's just so thin. Yeah, it really is so thin. I mean, I think that, you know, at a certain point, you're considering, do we want to take on Jeremy Guthrie? And, you know, he's a guy who's probably going to be making $9 million through arbitration next year. He's going to cost us a decent prospect. Is he that much better than Freddie Garcia? Is he that much better than Ivan Nova? So, you know, that's why the Yankees are interested in guys like Ubaldo Jimenez if he's available. Adil Gonzalez, if the A's were to listen on him. So, you know, it doesn't seem like those pitchers are going to be available, but the Yankees, uh, like any team, I mean, no club sits around and says, yeah, we're going to give up a decent prospect for a marginal upgrade who might actually lose us a valuable player and prevent us from making moves down the road because we're giving up prospects. So I think the Yankees are no exception to that, and they're not going to make a move for the sake of making a move. Are there some big players that will be available in the free agent market or in the offseason that are going to prevent that are going to keep teams from wanting to do anything right now and maybe be more patient, let the season play out as it does, and then maybe take a run at like an Albert Pujols if he actually is available in the summer? Or is there some other guys on that list of potential free agents that you think might cause teams to reevaluate their plans right now and wait to see what happens in the offseason? Yeah, I think this, I mean, not to, not to cop out here, but I really think that that is, is a factor for every player who's hitting the free agent market this offseason. I mean, there are certain exceptions, like Albert Pujols and, and Prince Fielder, but, I mean, you know, most players who are hitting the free agent market and who are not on teams currently in the playoff race are going to be available to one extent or another. And that's why, you know, I mentioned Derek Lee and Vladimir Guerrero earlier, Jeff Francoeur, you know, he has a mutual option, but for all intents and purposes, he'll be a free agent after the season. Um, you know, whether it's Adam Kennedy, whether, you know, you look at the Padres and guys like Keith Bell, any any guy who's going to hit the the open market and is anyone who's a, on a losing team and, and is is a free agent after the season is potentially available uh, in trades this summer. You do expect a lot of activity, maybe kind of not the bigger names that we're used to on a thirty uh, J- July thirty first. Maybe more smaller names, middle relievers, teams making small moves to position themselves. 
What teams do you think are in the best positions if they don't make a move at all? Is it Red Sox, Phillies, really the only two teams that can risk just kind of rolling the dice and waiting to see maybe something in August or going with the team they have? Or do you think maybe the Giants as the defending champs are another team that can kind of just get healthy and uh, use their players that are coming back as their trades. You kind of mentioned the Yankees. Well, maybe they won't make a trade for a bat, but they're going to get A-Rod back, and that's better than anyone they could trade for anyway. Yeah, I think there are actually a lot of teams that could make the playoffs without, you know, without actually making a move. And I think the Braves and Phillies fit into that category, the Yankees and Red Sox, the Rangers and the Giants. I think that the central divisions are too much up for grabs, but I, I really think that six of the eight playoff spots have been determined already in large part and clearly you have to play the games you have to win the games and you know you have to rely on a certain amount of luck too in terms of health and you know you can't have another Buster Posey injury if you're the Giants but I I really think that those six teams have an excellent chance of making the playoffs and that's not to discount the Diamondbacks or the Angels the Rays there are lots of good clubs out there but I, I think that those clubs that I just mentioned, do have a good shot, especially with the players returning from the disabled list and making the playoffs that they're making moves. So in your mind, only the two central divisions, well, it's not that you're saying those are the only ones up for grabs, but you're saying those are the ones that would most likely change, Pittsburgh and Detroit holding on to them right now. In your opinion, who do you think ultimately will get the playoff spots in the central divisions? Uh, ask me in a week. I mean, I, I think that, you know, the, the Tigers currently look like a pretty strong team, and I suspect that a week from now they might look a lot stronger. I think that they're a team that tends to be aggressive in these things and, and doesn't tend to wait around. I mean, it doesn't hurt that Dave Dombrowski and Jim Leland are in the last year of their contracts. They want to win now, and they have the, the pieces to do it. So I think that that's a club that, that could look stronger than it looks now a week from now. Uh, the NL Central is is really in limbo. I mean, who knows? Are the Reds going to acquire Jimenez? Are the Brewers going to make another move? The Cardinals could acquire some pitching, and who knows what the Pirates are going to do. So I think that there is a lot of uncertainty in both of those divisions, which, which makes it really hard to predict which team is actually the best one out there. The Sportscasters here with Ben Nicholson-Smith from MajorLeagueBaseballTradeRumors.com. You can find him at Twitter. At MLBTRBen thing we're going to do real quick i'm going to throw out some names and i just want you to give me a percentage that you think they it's likely that they would be traded so sure. we'll, we'll start with an easy one beltron 100 percent 95 95 percent okay what about baldo jimenez 25 okay carl pavano 15 jim tome zero jose reyes uh 15 amaris ramirez before I mean, in August, I'll say 50. Before August, zero. Coco Crisp. 50. Melky Cabrera. 50. Vladimir Guerrero. Before August, zero. All right, so we're going to have to see how things shape out. It sounds like you think we're going to have an, an active August, so we'll definitely get you back again. Thank you very much for sorting all this out for us. Now, what are you going to be doing on Sunday? How does the trade deadline, what's the life of a Major League Baseball trade m- rumor writer on the day of the trade deadline? Well, let me tell you, it's, it's going to be pretty busy. I mean, I would imagine that uh, during the day, uh, I'll be I'll be doing a number of radio appearances. I might head down to the to the Jays game here in Toronto and uh, do a bit of coverage there. But um, it'll be it'll be a pretty busy day as far as uh, talking to lots of uh, radio stations, and then starting at five Eastern, I will be on the site writing lots of stuff up and any trades that come in. Um, lots of reaction, lots of uh, lots of analysis coming in. Uh, later Sunday evening, so it should be a lot of fun. 
All right, enjoy yourself, and we'll touch base soon and kind of sort out how everything worked out. Absolutely. Thanks a lot. All right. Thanks, Ben. All right, I want to thank Ben Nicholson-Smith. Thanks for that great spot. Now we're all caught up on Major League Baseball trades. Should be an interesting day on Sunday. I will be live blogging at some point during the day on Sunday as the Major League trade, bu- trade deadline is at 5 o'clock at p.m. that day. And you can find that on the sportscasters.blogspot.com. Uh, real quick book, lo- book club update. We don't have a book right now. We're kind of in transition. But I thought we, what we could do for August is maybe instead of having a specific book, just kind of like read about football. What I mean, and maybe a good place to start, is Sports Illustrated has a really good collaboration called 50 Years of Great Football Writing, 1954 to 2004. And they have a bunch of articles in here that have been in Sports Illustrated about different things revolving around football. And also, like... Earlier, or next, we're going to have Matt Crossman on, and he has a long article about Arian Foster. So we can all kind of do this together. Don, I'm counting on you. Emailers, I'm counting on you. The sportscasters at gmail.com. Just kind of tell us about really good football writing that's out there. As we prepare for football season, who wouldn't want to sit down with a four- or five-page football article every once in a while and, and learn about something, learn about what Scott Norwood is doing now since... Uh, that epic kick, and that is one of the articles here in the in the Sports Illustrated book about uh, great football writing. So let's just kind of read around, it. Uh, read read some football stuff. Maybe in one of the old best American sports writing series books that you picked up when that was part of the book club. Maybe there's something in the Ocho Cinco book, although I doubt it that you might want to mention. <laughs> uh, maybe there's something in the New Rex Ryan book. But instead of just going crazy and picking one book and limiting ourselves, I thought every week in August when we update the book club. Don and I will each talk about some kind of football article, whether it be from the Sports Illustrated collaboration or something else. So that's what we're going to do for the book club this month. And then at the end of the month, I'm sure that one of the Sports Illustrated guys will be glad to come on and and talk about whatever article written we find to be most interesting this month. So we've already had Ben Nicholson-Smith. I mentioned Matt Crossman and his interview with Arian Foster. Here it is. We'll be back with pick four right after that. Our next guest is in Charlotte, North Carolina and is a graduate of Central Michigan University. He currently writes about football, baseball, and NASCAR for Sporting News, SportingNews.com, and Sporting News Today. His feature on Arian Foster earned him the cover of the current Sporting News magazine. A warm sportscaster's welcome to the versatile Matt Crossman. How are you doing today, Matt? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. How are you? Oh, we're doing very good. Very excited to have you on the show today. I've been meaning to reach out. I've actually been a Sporting News reader since I was a little kid. And back then it was a little small, well, it wasn't small, but it was a newspaper that kind of folded in oh, half, sure. yeah, sure, yeah. you know, and then I, I've, been with, I've been with Sporting News since then, all the changes, now we're kind of at a little bit of an oversized magazine, always been a reader, and 
I've enjoyed a bunch of your stories in the last couple months. And finally, the Arian Foster story kind of pushed me over the edge. <laughs> and I figured I should definitely reach out and talk to you because it was such a darn interesting story. Well, and I appreciate that. Such an interesting guy and someone that I think as football is coming back, people are going to be interested in because he's kind of, at this point, kind of an underground superstar in a way, winning his first rushing title last year, kind of out of nowhere. Um, I guess the probably the easiest way to start is just to ask you kind of simply, uh, what were your impressions of Arian Foster? First of all, what did you know about him going into it, and what about your time with him maybe changed that or kept that the same? Well, I, I actually had done a lot of legwork uh, prior to meeting with him. I had spent... Uh, literally hours on the phone with his mom, his dad, his brother, and his sister, which is is typically what I do. Uh, you know, I, I get to know uh, the people who know him, uh, the subject that I'm writing about before I go talk to him. Uh, with him, it was a, a little more family-centric uh, than it normally is, and that's just unique to his background, that his family is really important. So I, I felt like uh, I knew him pretty well going in. Uh, now, before that, you know, I didn't really know very much about him at all. I mean, I, I knew he had led the league in rushing. I knew he was considered an all-around back, and I knew he was a different kind of personality, but that was about the extent of it. Uh, and, and so I just sort of got to know him better, I guess, uh, by hanging out with him. I want to read something from the article. It sure. says, Shakespeare quoting, yoga practicing, linebacker outrunning, testament to the idea that hard work, fueled by dedication, can turn dreams into reality. You know who that reminds me of, if I didn't know this was about Arian Foster? is Tiki Barber. Is he kind of like a, and then throw out all of the scandal that has kind of crept into Tiki Barber's life in the last couple right. of months. But what we know about Tiki Barber, or what we knew about Tiki Barber for most of his career, Arian Foster reminds me of that. Kind of a really smart guy who is different from his teammates, as you say, quotes Shakespeare. Is that a fair comparison? It, it, it is. I would say, uh, w without knowing Tiki Barber probably well enough uh, to say anything too specific, is that Foster has so much of a, a nonconformist streak in him uh, that I'm not sure if that's, that's true of Tiki, but certainly the, the drivenness and the... Uh, cut from a different cloth uh, type style personality, certainly. Another thing I want to read from the article and get your reaction on. You say he still might be playing football and might have moved on to music or a writing career. Is that something that we can expect from him after his career? Do you think he has a future in writing and music and things like that? And does he have ambitions outside of football? Yes, uh, that's what I frankly found the most Oh, pleasing about his personality. The thing that I liked about him the most is uh, a lot of times in this job, I'll go out and talk to somebody in baseball or football or NASCAR or whatever it is, is their whole life, and they will tell you that, that that's their whole life. And he is the opposite. If, if all he ever was known about, uh, known of was as a football player, that would, uh, that would crush him. He would, that would drive him crazy. There's a lot more to him than that. Uh, and, uh, you know, in the story, we published some of his writing and, uh, you know, I've seen it other places, and I actually went through the trouble of sending it around to some people who know about poetry. I don't know, you know, I know a lot about writing. I don't know squat about poetry. So I sent it around, and the reaction that I got to it was that he's got a lot of talent. You know, it's raw, but, you know, he's, you know, it's pretty obvious just by the, the, the little stuff that we publish that he's got away with words. Uh, and really, the, the, the writing, though, the, the poetry that we publish, it's, it's probably better to call those uh, lyrics that just haven't been put to song yet. Uh, 
And really, probably the only reason I would say, I don't want to say the only reason, but the main reason he has not pursued a music career while he's a player is he knows what will happen when he does that, and it will be that he's not taken seriously or that he'll become a cliche, and that would, that would also drive him nuts. That he, he, wants to be, he wants to be known as somebody who puts out quality work both in football and in music or writing. So I, I would say definitely uh, whenever he retires from football that a music or, or writing career, uh, if he hasn't started it already by then, then that, that's what he will do next in his life. I watch a lot of SEC football. I think a lot of sports fans do, CBS on Saturdays. Mm-hmm. And I remember Arian Foster from the SEC, but I remembered him as kind of like a fumbler, an underachiever. How did he get from being not really the star at Tennessee that maybe they thought he might be when they recruited him to a guy who wins the rushing title in the National Football League? Yeah, that's a great question. And it's a very long answer, so bear with me. Yep. The first is that, Keep in mind that he's the number two rusher in the history of Tennessee football. So it's not like he stunk there. He had, uh, but he did have a very bad senior season, uh, both personally and uh, play-wise. He was miserable. The team was terrible. The coach got fired. Uh, he, he and his family will they get pretty angry when people say, call him a fumbler. They say, if you look at the numbers, uh, there's, there's no foundation for that, that it's just that he fumbled three or four times in horrifically bad situations that basically cost the team games which is true, which if you ask me, if, you cost, if uh, <laughs> more than once or twice you cost a t- your team a game with a fumble, then you've got a fumble. Sounds like a fumble. But, but let, 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 yeah. let, let's set that aside and say maybe he's got, he, he hasn't fumbled in the NFL, so let's say he doesn't have a fumble problem. So he goes undrafted because he did, uh, he'd gotten hurt in the senior bowl and didn't have very good combine, didn't have very good pro day. Uh, but keep in mind, he, he, was, he had a couple of really good seasons at Tennessee, and as a high school athlete, he was off the charts good. Like, yep. uh, you know, national records in, in terms of, uh, you know, yards from scrimmage. He was good enough as a point guard. This didn't make it into the story. He was good enough as a point guard in basketball that uh, a couple of small schools offered him scholarships. So keep in mind that he, he's ferociously talented. There was a couple of things converged. Throughout his life, he was so much better at everybody at football that he never had to try very hard, frankly. And, uh, and, and, Scouts and coaches could see that. That's part of the reason he didn't get drafted. Uh, but he got over that, or he realized that, uh, after that little bit that he played in 2009, he got in three or four games, realized at the end of that season, uh, going into the next season, that if he didn't start working for it, his dream was going to get ruined and he would have no one to blame but himself. So he spent uh, this time last year just working himself uh, with his brother as his trainer, working himself half to death, and that's made all the difference in the world. Is the uh, he, the physical ability uh, was always and forever there. Uh, the the work ethic was not. And once he got that work ethic, he blew up. You mentioned his brother Abdul, who has mm-hmm. been working with him. Uh, they ran the track at what was it, Florida A and M together. You He's said in the story. And uh, you know, I'm I'm someone who's really close with my brothers, and I always. Ha- end up having a soft spot for other people who are really close with their brothers. Um, is is the the family connection you mentioned it kind of off the top? Is that really what he's about? Is he really really close with his family, and is his family kind of like what defines him as a person? Yeah, uh, I, I would y- yes to all of that. He has uh, he's the youngest of three, so uh, Abdul is older than him, and then he has an older sister named Christina, and then his. His mom and dad have been divorced since, 
over 10 years or so, but they have uh, remained pretty close. They, uh, they joke that they're, they, they do better as a divorced couple than they do as a married couple. Uh, and, and that fact there, the fact that his parents have uh, worked hard to keep the family together has been absolutely crucial uh, in, in his development. But yeah, his brother, now he will say, Arian will tell you, uh, Abdullah is not training me because he's my brother. He's training me because he's a great trainer. Mm. And I would say that that's true, but that his personality is such that he absolutely has to trust somebody in order to buy what they're selling. And he trusts Abdul with everything. So, uh, you know, it, it, it's kind of six of one, half dozen the other. But one of the reasons that Abdul is so good as a trainer is because he's Arian's brother, right. if that makes sense. You mentioned in the article that he likes to ask a lot of questions. Did you ever feel like he was interviewing you instead of uh, the other way around? Is that just kind of like a something as we can describe his personality, just someone who always wants to know why? Yeah, yeah. He, I wouldn't say it was like he was interviewing me. I've had interviews like that, and this, this wasn't that. It, it, that's more if you tell him what to if a coach tells him what to do and doesn't say why, he's not going to listen. Uh, that would be a, a, a fairly consistent criticism. I talked to uh, his high school coach, two of his college coaches, and his running back, his position coach in the NFL, and that, they, you know, the cost of doing business with him is when you tell him to do something, you have to explain why. And it, it, it's sad that, you know, in team sports, that is seen as somehow being, you know, disrespectful or, or you know, not being a team player when it's just, it's part of how the guy learns. It's, it's how he understands. You just have to tell him why. And once you do, you, 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 you'll have him. And it also it makes him a better player because he, he doesn't just, uh, memorize. One of his coaches told me this, and I thought it was very interesting. He doesn't just memorize what he's supposed to do on a particular play. He understands why he's supposed to do it, and that, that, that's that's a big difference. Because when if a play breaks down and all you know what to do is what you've memorized, you're in trouble. But if you understand what it is you're supposed to do, that that makes you a more effective player. That's very interesting. Do you think last year obviously wins the rushing title? 1,600 yards rushing, great season. Do you think that's the ceiling for him, or do you think we haven't even seen the best of Arian Foster yet? Is this the kind of player who is going to continue to get better? I mean, obviously, he's only really basically a second-year running back next year because he played so sparingly his rookie year. Do you think he has a lot of room to grow? Is there a lot of upside for him? Is he someone who can win multiple rushing titles? Uh, That's an interesting question, and I tried to get him to talk about that, and one of his oh, I don't know if idiosyncrasy is the right word, but he would not, he basically would not discuss that, that the idea of comparing one season to another, he basically said, I could rush for 2,500 yards, and somebody, somebody could say, I should have rushed for 2,510, and so therefore I had a bad season. It's like, that's ridiculous. So the way he looks at it is, you know, am I adding value to the game, which sort of lets him off the hook because there, there's no, basically, there's, there's no defining value. While you, when you can define a 1,500-yard season as being one in which you gain 1,500 yards, but you can't design a season in which you add value to the team. But that's the way he looks at it. Uh, what I think is uh, that, yeah, he'll, for, for a couple of reasons, I, I think uh, he has a, a good career ahead of him. The first is that uh, he has basically the best wide receiver in the NFL uh, in Andre Johnson uh, drawing the attention of the defenses, plus an extraordinarily talented quarterback who can get the ball to Andre Johnson. That makes a running back's job a lot easier when you've got those two uh, on your side. But also, he's big, he's fast, he's strong, he's a great pass catcher, and he's a great blocker. There's, there's basically nothing that he doesn't do well. If he's not the best all-around back in the game, he's, he's uh, in the conversation. So uh, 
you know, he's just he's absurdly athletically talented. His high school coach told me if he had come along a couple of years later, he would have been uh, a quarterback in an option system. So that's what kind of athleticism we're talking about. And, and that's not the kind of thing that suddenly goes away. You mentioned Andre Johnson and Matt Schaub and how they kind of take uh, the defender's attention away at times. Is that something he acknowledges as, uh, you know, uh, a key to his success? Does he appreciate the talent of Andre Johnson? And, you know, because it's kind of like when you think of Houston, you almost look at them as like a passing team. And it's yep. almost like a shock that they would have the leading rusher on the team. Uh, you know, I, I can't, frankly, I can't remember if I asked him that, but I know that he would. I mean, he's, he's a very smart player. He, he knows that one of the reasons a running back has lanes to run in is because a wide receiver has uh, helped create them. You know, uh, but he's also a very proud man and, and well, wants to take credit for what he has done. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, that, that's a, when you have a talented running back and a talented wide receiver and a talented quarterback, I mean, that team's going to score a lot of points and they're all going to get a lot of yards. Right, it's almost like the triplet kind of thing in Dallas. It is very, it's yeah. very much like that, yep. Yep, absolutely. So, bottom line, Arian Foster, if you were, had the first pick in the fantasy draft this year, would he be your choice? Oh, that's a good one. Now, because it, that's it's a different question than if... if uh, I, I'm, I'm not sure that he's the best fantasy guy just because there's... He's, I don't know that Andre Johnson isn't uh, as good of a scoring option as he is. So I might look at somebody who's more of a uh, more of the absolute no question number one offensive force on his team. Uh, but certainly you couldn't go wrong if you took him. <laughs> I'm not I'm a little rusty on my fantasy. I, I guess I might think of you know Adrian Peterson just because he carries more of the load that you you know you think who else is going to score on the Vikings other than him. But because Andre Johnson is uh, you know, he's probably depending on how many guys are in your league, Andre Johnson is probably a first round pick too. And then suddenly there are two guys on the same team going in the first round. I'm not sure that that's uh, the best way to, to uh, you know, set your fantasy lineup. But I will also say what I know about fantasy football would fit in the shot glass. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so. I don't know what kind of college you went to, but this is a side note. I played the, the CMU fight song off the top, and I played it on YouTube, and I just turned the volume down and let it run out. And it says, up next, Central Girls 2009 te- teaser, and it has a picture of a young lady sort of lately dressed. So I don't know what happened over at uh, Central Michigan, but we'll, this is a family show, so we maybe shouldn't talk about that. Yeah, oh yeah. Did we, uh, all, we, all I did was study from morning <laughs> till night. Yeah. Uh, and I, you know, I lived at the library, basically. I, I had a cot in there and a, and a bed and a pillow, and I drank orange juice every night. And the church mm-hmm. on campus you often prayed at? Uh, pretty much. Yeah. All right. You, well, believe any, you believe any of that? <laughs> no. <laughs> All right. I went to college, too, you know. Uh, <laughs> you talk to a lot of athletes, and one of the ways that you talk to them is a really cool feature in the magazine, and it's kind of, I'm going to call it the as-told-to section. Mm-hmm. And, it, and it seems to appear every week, maybe not every week, maybe, maybe every other magazine, but you've talked to people like Bobby Richardson, Greg Anthony, Larry Johnson, Don Zimmer. Uh, what yep, do you like? That's every, I do that every issue. Yeah, you do I that. Rem- the feature is called I Remember. Every okay, issue. Okay, I remember. Yeah. Uh, how do these come about? And uh, is it something like you think of a moment in time and then you try to approach that person and see if it will work out? Or, you know, I'm just curious about how you get to talking to Bobby Richardson or mm-hmm. uh, Greg Anthony as opposed to, I don't know, Brian Bosworth. That's a, that's a good question. It, they come about in, in many different ways. Sometimes... Uh, we try to peg them to something else that is going on in the magazine, like we've been doing this big 
uh, celebration of the magazine turning 125. So right. we've done like best, best baseball team, best this, best that. So I've, a lot of them have focused on uh, something to do with those stories. But I was doing it before that, and I'll do it after it. Uh, really, a, a lot of it, I, uh, you know, a, a lot of it is just you know trying to think of what what are cool. Like I'll look up anniversaries. Like last year uh, was 2010, so it was the 50th anniversary of the only walk off home run in the bottom of the ninth of Game Seven in World Series history, uh, which is Bill Mazeroski. And you know, they're they're frankly they're they're very easy to do because you're asking a person to talk about the greatest moment uh, of their life. Well, the greatest moment in their career, right? Uh, you know, because these guys are married and they have right. kids, and I right. would, you know, so. But certainly, it's the greatest moment of their career, and you know, they're. I, I can't think of a single time that I've uh, gotten a hold of somebody and said, "Would you do this?" And they've said no. Uh, you know, they they love talking about it, and I try to always do uh, ones that people. I don't know why I do this, but I, I, I it, it's like the standard. The standard is I have to already know what the person's name is, what they did, and a pretty good idea of when it was. Otherwise, it's not good enough. You know what I mean? Right. Like, it, it, it's not, I'm not going to do one uh, as much as I enjoyed going to Central Michigan University. Uh, whatever the greatest moment in Central Michigan University football history is, that ain't good enough. You know, because it, nobody knows it. It, it. There has to be some standard by which, you know, most people know it. Gotcha. Now, you talked to another athlete that you talked to recently, is Jose Bautista. And mm-hmm. he's a guy that's been covered pretty extensively this year. I know Joe, Joe Posnanski did an article about him as well. Uh, how did he strike you, uh, Joe Batista or Jose Batista? He's kind of this, again, maybe similar to Foster, just kind of out-of-nowhere superstar uh, mm-hmm. that went, to, went from being kind of an average baseball player to leading the American League at the All-Star break in practically every offensive category other than runs. Uh, yep. how, does he sh- how does he strike you as a guy, and where did this come from? And unfortunately, you know, we have to ask, do you think it's clean? I do think it's clean. Uh, it is unfortunate that we have to ask. Yeah, it's After what we've been through in this, in this sport, you do have to, you do have to wonder. I, I think I, I agree with you in the out-of-nowhere nature comparing him to Arian Foster, but other than that, the two are not similar. I, I would say Bautista is much more methodical. Uh, he, was, he is an, uh, an engineer as a batter, and Arian Foster is a, an artist as a running back. And what I mean by that is, uh, you know, Foster is never going to do the same thing two times in a row because he, he plays much more on, as hard as he works, he plays more on feel and on instincts. And Bautista is about uh, just having a, a, a very mechanical, not mechanical, that's not the right, a, a very precise and rhythmic and first one thing, then another swing that if he starts messing with it, it gets all out of whack. And he has to repeat the swing over and over and over again. If he told Arian Foster to repeat like a run over and over again, he'd want to beat his head against the wall. He says that he doesn't try to hit home runs. Do you believe that? Yeah, because if he do, if he did, if he if he cha- now now there's a, there's a subtle difference here. He's not trying to hit home runs, but his swing is one that makes home runs possible. So he has a swing that is sort of designed to help hit home runs. So in a way, he is trying, but he's really uh, he he put it really well. He said something like, uh, uh, "I'm trying to hit the ball." hard not far because if i try to hit it far i won't hit it hard which is pretty interesting so he's just trying to repeat the same swing over and over again and if he changes that swing 
uh, to more directly try to hit a home run, he'll screw the swing all up. Something that I found really interesting is that in the year of the pitcher, as people have been calling it, where people are doing cover stories on a cut fastball and uh, the Phillies and their dominating staff, instead of putting Cliff Lee or Cole Hamels on the cover, you guys went with Big Ryan Howard, and your, your article was about home runs and how they're not gone and how they're still cool. Uh, what is it about the home run that made you want to write this story, and what did you find out about home runs in this era where totals are certainly down, uh, and the leader it isn't hitting as many as the leader had in the past? That basically, that's what I learned. I, I, I don't know that I really learned anything so much as I uh, just ask guys to explain how they do it. And uh, I was surprised a little bit how infrequently guys would admit that they try to hit home runs, but I think they might have been... Uh, Oh, when they say never, uh, whenever, whenever an athlete tells me they never try to do a particular thing, uh, I guess my ears start to ring a little bit. My BS detector rings a little bit. Uh, but, yeah, you know, we've, we have covered the, uh, the fact that pitchers are doing better, uh, and, and this was just a, a little bit of a different approach. What, uh, what are some of the top maybe two or three storylines that you've enjoyed following during the baseball season this year? Uh, well, that's a good question. Let me think for a second. Uh, I thought that the AL East has been fascinating. Uh, you know, I, I was one of those guys who was ready to crown the, the Red Sox the champion before we even played a game, and then they went out and, you know, laid a big fat egg. Yeah. But, but they've also come back, and I don't have the standings in front of me, but they're certainly back. It's a, th- you know, it's a, it's a great race. Uh, probably the most surprising thing is it's got to be the Pirates being, uh, you know, first of all, not terrible, second of all, yeah. over 500, third of all in first place in in July, and if they keep it up, they'll be in first place in August, which you know makes me look to the horizon to see if the four horsemen are coming. Uh, <laughs> but I, I would say that that's certainly the biggest surprise, and what a great race that uh, Central, the NL yeah. Central is going to be. You know, with the fourteen, you know, the, the, Car- the Cardinals, the Brewers, the Pirates, and the Reds are certainly still in it. Uh, it should be really should be great. The sportscasters are here with Matt Crossman from Sports or Sporting News, SportingNews.com. You guys also do a thing called Sporting News Today, which I read every day on my iPad. And uh, it's usually get an email around, it says 4.30 in the morning. I'm usually not up to receive it, but <laughs> saying, <laughs> saying that it's ready. And uh, how, how do you like kind of writing for that? Because it seems like it's a lot different than the magazine or the website. Everything's a lot shorter, it seems like. Um, it's, it's kind of more in a recap mode sometimes than uh, probably what you're trying to accomplish for the magazine, which has to has to last a little bit longer, where this information just kind of comes and goes daily. Uh, what do you like about uh, Sporting News today, and maybe what don't you like? Well, uh, with all due respect, I'm not going to answer what I don't like about a product I work for. <laughs> uh, I, I, w- what I like about it is the, is the immediacy of it. Uh, it it's, it's, it's like, you know, I, I, to, to, if you write something for online, you can turn it in and, you know, as, as quickly as someone can edit it and put it up, then it's live. It takes a little more nuance than that with, with Sporting News Today that uh, I sort of act like I, I th- uh, like the people, like the first thing that I'll write if I'm covering a game, for example, uh, the first thing that I write for online, uh, I'm assuming people did not watch the game and have not watched SportsCenter and don't know who won yet. So that's just, you know, the score was this, A happened, then B happened, then C happened, then D happened, then the end, and bye-bye, see you later. Uh, Sporting News Today is, uh, uh, you know, you've got to be a little more dexterous than that because, like you said, it comes out the following morning. I'm going to assume that if you are reading Sporting News Today, you're a hardcore sports fan, and 
whatever the event is, say it's like a uh, NCAA tournament game. That's probably where I've done the most work for, uh, or like the Daytona 500. Uh, you already know what happened by the time you open up Sporting News today, pretty much. Uh, th- that's my assumption, at least. That's what I write based on. So then it's a little bit more storytelling, a little more behind the scenes, and trying to have a little more fun with it rather than just uh, purely informational purposes. This isn't something really that anyone else is doing. It's kind of like a, a, a great new idea that Sporting News came up with. Has this been considered a success? Is this something that we can count on seeing for a long time to come? Is this part sure of the so. brand? Yeah, yeah I mean, the, the feedback we get is, is uniformly positive. Uh, people love it that it it uh, you know condenses a uh, a massive amount of information into an easily readable thing. Uh, it you know it looks and, and feels like a newspaper, uh, which just gives it a, a different uh, a different feel when you're when you're perusing it than a than a website. You know you don't sort of get lost in the rabbit hole of a website of clicking to this and clicking to that. You go you go through it as opposed to reading one and going to something else. The sportscasters are here with Matt Crossman from. Sporting News, SportingNews.com, Sporting News Today. You can find him at Twitter. It's at Crossman Matt. Uh, just a couple more questions I should ask you while you're here because it's something we don't cover as much as maybe we should. And, that, and just talk about NASCAR for a couple of minutes. Uh, sure. Carl Edwards is leading the point standing and the chase for the chase for the cup here is only a couple of weeks away. But I can't help but see that name below him. Jimmy Johnson, only second place. Is he really geared for another championship run here? Oh, I think so. Yeah. I think uh, he's won five in a row. Uh, every season has gone essentially like this one is, where he starts off hot, uh, sort of just crummy in the, in the middle of the summer. And people say, what's the matter with Jimmy Johnson? And then it gets towards the end of the summer, you know, late July, August, he starts winning again. And people say, nothing's wrong with Jimmy Johnson. He's done this five times in a row. What are you going to figure out that he's sort of doing this on purpose? So yeah, it, until until someone knocks him off the off of the uh, you know the podium, he's the he's the guy to beat. And I'm not convinced anybody's got anything for him. If somebody were to knock him off, would it be Kyle Edwards? Would it be Kurt Busch or Kevin Harvick? Is there a guy that you maybe give an edge to when it comes to the tracks in the chase or something like that that could boost someone up? I'm not sure if I would. I'm not sure if I would say it's because based on the tracks and the chase, because they're so. You know, these guys are. are if you're in the chase, you're going to be good at the chase tracks. Mostly, that's not uniformly true, but it's mostly true. Uh, I, I would say, uh, consistency is the is the thing that has won him those championships. Is that there's nobody who's been able to finish ten races in a row as well as he has, uh, and you know nobody has shown the ability to do that other than him. But uh, I think. Uh, among the guys that you listed, I would say Carl Edwards, and I would say he's probably the best challenger. Uh, and then I would put uh, probably Kurt Busch behind him, mostly because he's done it. Be- he's the only other one who's done it before. Uh, you know, Tony Stewart has, but I, he's barely even going to make the chase if he does. Uh, so I wouldn't put Tony in that category. So I would guess, uh, you know, I'm not convinced that Kyle Busch, he's the one a lot of other people will be talking about. I'm not convinced he has it in him to keep his head screwed on straight for 10 races. And I'm not convinced that Kevin Harvick is, frankly, good enough as a driver, and I'm not convinced that his equipment is good enough that, that he's really a challenger uh, over a, a run like that. But he was so close last year, I could be completely wrong there. All right, Matt Crossman, Sporting News. Do you have anything you want to plug? What's coming up? What's, uh, who's, who's the as told by this, uh, this magazine that will be in my mailbox in a few days? Oh, that's a good question. It is. Uh, it's a NASCAR one. Uh, that most, uh, th- this is actually slightly violating my rule that I, I told you earlier that, that you have to know it. Uh, and, and it's on a race in 
1972 in which uh, a driver named uh, Benny Parsons won the championship. And I, I chose it because the issue is uh, the top ten individual accomplishments uh, in sports history. And while this didn't make the list, uh, his car was essentially ripped in half in the middle of a race, and they put it back together in the final race, which should have cost him the championship. But they basically put his car back together and got him back on the track, and he won the championship. Fascinating. Well, I can't wait to read it. We appreciate your time, and hopefully we can do it again sometime soon. All right, well, thanks for having me on. Thank you very much. Sportscasters back for one last segment here in episode number 32. I want to thank our guests, Ben Nicholson-Smith from MLBRumors.com and Matt Crossman from The Sporting News. Also, I want to remind you that we do have episode number 33 this, this week. You don't have to wait till next week like usual. And it is our lockout, end of the lockout football spectacular. We had three guests there, Gabe Feldman uh, talking about the legal we also had Kerry J. Byrne talking about his website, Cold Hard Football Facts. And we also had John P. Lopez talking about free agency. Make sure you check out that episode. It's a, it's a super long but super entertaining and very thorough look at the start of the new NFL season. Don and I make a couple of predictions as we always do. We do three things off the top. We talk fantasy. We talk free agency. We talk about the CBA and really... Gabe is great. He does a really good job of kind of explaining everything to me and to the listeners and really making it easy to understand. Also, just one more time real quick, I want to plug a few things. Facebook.com slash the sportscasters. Give us a like. Twitter.com slash sports underscore casters. Give us a follow there. You can email us at the sportscasters at gmail.com. Follow our blogs, the sportscasters.blogspot.com and our website where you can find all this information in sports-casters.com. Last thing we need to do today is pick four. Another sorry week for Don as he went one and three. When do I get to throw the, in a towel for this For thing? the third straight week. Uh, Weaver was his pitcher. You're pretty good at that. Yeah. You're four and one. And that Weaver and the Angels beat the Rangers one to nothing. Oof. You lost the Giants over the Dodgers one to nothing. Reds over the Pirates three to one. And free agency is yet to start, unfortunately. So your bold prediction has not come true. I went 2-2. Two and two. The Dodgers over the Giants game of the week. I correctly picked the Dodgers 1-0. I predicted that the Phillies would beat the Padres 3-1. to one They did. And my boxing, my bold prediction, I picked that Khan would defeat Judah. I watched this and I tweeted a little bit about it. I couldn't have been any more wrong on this one. Judah got his ass kicked. Well, that's what the odds said. That's I mean, what made it bold. It so. was an epic ass kicking. <laughs> I don't... I mean, I think I made a joke about my last poll prediction. I wasn't sure if Andrew McCutcheon made it into the All-Star game. I'm not sure if uh, Judah threw a punch in this, <laughs> this fight. I mean, he got his ass kicked, and then he tried to fake a low blow to get points, and the ref ended up just counting him out. It was a, a, a pathetic display of boxing. Um, and, yeah, the odds were heavily favored. But, I mean, I expected the guy to, to have a puncher's chance, right. which is impossible if you don't punch. Right. And uh, I also lost my pitcher. I had Hudson of Arizona. He had a lead in the game, but I ended up losing eight to four. So currently, I am fifty-eight and fifty-five, and Don is fifty-three and sixty-two. Don, it's a good thing you got those two extra bonus points under the the uh, NHL lockout. No Otherwise, you would be fifty-one and sixty-two. Embarrassing. 
All right, game of the week. Start us off. Bears, uh, <laughs> embarrassing. Game of the week this week is uh, the Giants at Philly Wednesday night at 7. Uh, again, it sees Barry Zito and Cole Hamels. I'm going to take Philly and Cole Hamels in his 12-5 and record at home. Yeah, I think this is the biggest matchup of the week. The Giants and Phillies in a rematch from their playoff series last year. Two of the best teams in the National League. Probably the National League is a three-team race this year between the Braves, Phillies, and Giants. Barry Zito has pitched very well since he's come off the disabled list. Cole Hamels has pitched well all season. If you're going with the Phillies, I'll take the Giants. I like Zito. I like the way he's been pitching. Uh, so I'll pick the Giants to win that one. My host choice this week, I took a Thursday night, or Thursday afternoon game, 2-10. Uh, the Cubs visit the Brewers. I'm going to take the Brewers with Markham pitching to win the game. My host choice... I'm going to pick the Cardinals and Jamie Garcia with a 10 and 4 record, a 3.01 ERA over the Astros, and Wendy Rodriguez 6 and 7 with a 3.97 ERA. My pitcher this week, and I got to start writing these down, otherwise I'm going to forget who I've already used. But I'm going to take uh, Josh Beckett, 9 and 3, 2.07 ERA. Uh, he's uh, the Red Sox are home against the Royals, and that's another afternoon game, 135 on Thursday. I made the exact same pick. <laughs> well, we don't plan this at home, kids, but I also picked Beckett in the Red Sox. My bold prediction this week, uh, I'm going to punk out a little bit on this one, and I'm going to roll over my bold prediction from last week. I think Cobb to the, card, uh, the Cardinals is almost a no-brainer. I've heard reports suggesting that he's been looking at real estate in Arizona. D'Angelo Williams to the Cowboys, like I clarified on the other podcast, I didn't realize the financials uh, – but they freed up room. Right, how strapped the Cowboys are. But they did make a bunch of cuts, one of them interestingly being Marion Barber. So they need a full-time back if they don't think it's the shard choice So or Felix Jones. So I'm going to stick with uh, Williams to the Cowboys and Cobb to the Cards as part of my bold prediction. Way at the beginning of this show, we played an MLS highlight. Well, it was actually the LA Galaxy playing Manchester City. Yeah. And we played that clip. My bold prediction this week is involves the LA Galaxy. They're hosting the worst team in the NLS, Vancouver. Vancouver is a city that often has the worst team in something. For example, when they had their basketball team, the Vancouver Grizzlies, they were like the worst basketball team of all time. <laughs> now they have a soccer team. They're the worst soccer team of all time. I'm going to boldly predict that Vancouver will at least draw against the LA Galaxy this Saturday July 30th, 2011. Sounds good. All right, so that's going to wrap us up for episode 32. Again, that's not all the sportscasters for you this week. Episode 33, make sure you check it out. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at DonLikeSports, at Diversity23. Cue the hip. We're out. <laughs>